Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 4th of May, 2020. Mm. Got there in the end, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and uh, we're also joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Another day in lockup. Uh, absolutely. Uh, let's just run through the usual statistics. Uh, three and a half million cases of COVID-19 at the moment. Uh, 248,641 deaths, uh, 1.161 million recoveries. Uh, that leaves uh, 2,174,000 active cases, of which 2,124 are considered mild and 49,995 uh, considered serious or critical. So that's back down below the, uh, the 50,000 mark. Uh, now, uh, today is Monday the 4th of May, as Brian's just said, and that means uh, that it is the day that uh, uh, they launch their uh, conference, their international conference on cooperation uh, over coronavirus vaccines. Uh, so Boris Johnson today is uh, co-hosting this with the European Union. As you can see, this is the European Union very excited about the fact that they are the, the main host of this. Begins at 2 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, which may, means it may have started already, because uh, of course uh, that's central, that's European time. But anyway, uh, what are they saying? They're saying that this is a conference to drive forward the global race for co uh, coronavirus vaccines, treatments, and tests, uh, and it's a call on other countries to step up their efforts to work together uh, on the most urgent shared endeavour of our lifetimes. Uh, so uh, Boris Johnson is going to be co-hosting this with the EU. Uh, this uh, comes with a load of money attached to it. So the UK has so far given £744 million uh, of aid for the global response to coronavirus. Uh, today's pledge uh, towards eight, the $8 billion target is made up of uh, £388 million support for new vaccines, tests and treatments, £250 million to the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness uh, and Innovations, that's CEPI, uh, and uh, £40 million to the Global Therapeutics Accelerator, 23 million to, the, to support Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, uh, 75 million for the World Health Organization, um, and, uh, and so on. So uh, it's going to be co-hosted, uh, Brian, with uh, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Norway, Saudi Arabia, and the European Commission. So, so we've had Brexit, we've left the European Union, and uh, we're straight back into their table and, and we've got, we've magic three quarters of a billion pounds. Yes, uh, but don't worry, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will be taking part in this this oh, afternoon. Okay. So, so you can rest assured that everything's going to be fine there. This is what uh, Boris had to say, or had, is saying today, to win this battle, we must work together to build an impregnable shield around our people. And that can only be achieved by developing and mass producing a vaccine. Uh, he said, the more we pull together and share our expertise, the faster our scientists will succeed. The race to discover the vaccine to defeat the virus is not a competition between countries, but the most urgent shared endeavour of our lifetimes. Uh, and uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who's the uh, no, no longer Defence Procurement Minister, but is in fact uh, International Development Secretary, said it's only by working together that we'll prevent future waves of infection and end this pandemic as quickly as possible. So there you go. Um, future waves is something which so keeps coming back. How has mankind managed to survive for a great many years without Bill Gates' vaccines? Uh, I don't know, uh, but, but, uh, but, but so now we've got we've got uh, we've got a, a virus which is so powerful we cannot survive as a human race without without the vaccine. Uh, no, uh, that's true, and in fact we're not even probably going to see the end to the the full end to the lockdown until that happens, uh, as uh, Michael Gove was saying yesterday. Um, about uh, when can we return to normal? Um, I think people have used the phrase a new normal, and, and, and by that I think um, what uh, they've sought to imply is that we can begin, we hope, uh, as you quite rightly point out, as the, as the Arnold figure comes down, to ease some of the restrictions, uh, but we, we have to do so in a cautious fashion. Um, and the transport sector was right to say that we can begin to see perhaps more people use public transport, but provided they um, are helped to, uh, to stagger or to control the times when they use public transport in the way that people have already adjusted to uh, uh, how they might use um, supermarkets and food shops and so on. Ultimately, um, unless and until we have a vaccine, then I suspect that we're going to have to live with some degree of constraint 
uh, because of the nature of the, of the virus, but we obviously want to, um, uh, wherever possible and consistent with our measures on public health, uh, restore people's lives to um, uh, as close to normal as possible. So as close to normal as possible. Uh, David, uh, what are your thoughts on that? That's quite troubling because Mr. Gove is not being honest there. He said people have used the phrase the new normal. Oh, yes, they have. It's worldwide. It's in every media and, and politician's mouth in the planet. But it doesn't mean what Mr. Gove says. New normal means we're not going back. New normal means the society is going to be transformed and it will not return to what we remember. That's what new normal means. Does he mean that? It, it seems very vague and wishy-washy and uncertain. Also, the idea that only a vaccine can protect humanity from this, 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 this disease, which has got something like a 0.1 to 0.3% case fatality rate. I, I mean, are you kidding me? This is this is not this is not the, the threat it's been uh, it's been talked up to be, and uh, the idea that only a vaccine and not, you know, good nutrition, human health, um, and 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 our own in, in intrinsic immune systems will deal with this in the way it's, it's always dealt with it. It seems to be delusional. It's what what where is this coming from in the government? Where is Boris getting this from? He seems to have lost the plot. Uh, well, of course, the answer to that question is in Vanessa Bailey's article on the UK Column website at the moment. So uh, anybody that hasn't read that yet uh, should do so. Well, I'm also going to say, David, I, I don't see anything delusional in what the government is doing. It's a question of putting the pieces on the table and having a look at them. Well, we've got an exclusive today. We'll introduce it with this uh, particular slide. So Sky News a few hours ago said that Boris Johnson is set to reveal the lockdown exit plan on Sunday. Um, what we're perceiving is this is pure theatre by Boris Johnson because it's what's going on behind the scenes that the British public and indeed worldwide public really need to understand. Now, we've been getting some really extraordinary information from people over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, people inside the establishment deeply concerned about what is going on. Much of that was around 77 Brigade, but today we felt we had to share um, what we've been told. So let's have a look at this. Now, we're saying this is uh, a government whistleblower. We're saying these are allegations of uh, conversations that have taken place in some high-level meetings, uh, but the picture seems to fit. Let's have a look. So the overview is that COVID-19 lockdown is the perfect opportunity to, quote, repurpose government. And this has been a term that we've seen a little bit in the wider press. But we know that inside the government, massive changes going on, simply not debated in Westminster on the floor of the House, and most MPs completely ignorant. So the individual said there are three ideas operating now, rethinking and repurposing government and how to exit the lockdown. And uh, there's a complete lack of inoperati inoperability in government. So interoperability. interoperability. Thank you, uh, Mike. So we're to believe that the British government over the last 10, 20 years has simply uh, started to be unable to function. Departments can't talk to each other. They don't know how to pass information between them. And the system is operating in vertical silos, not horizontally. And... Uh, the uh, quote given to us was that not even the Treasury connects to Whitehall. Um, this uh, term silos, of course, absolutely common purpose speak there. Uh, interesting, very interesting that people are trapped in a vertical line. Now, originally you have vertical management lines because it, it can bring order. But now this is a big problem. And of course, uh, common purpose was talking in those silos. But let's add in the last point here. The problem is how to enable collaboration across government departments, because the issues are all bigger than any one department. This is key. So um, what this individual is suggesting was being discussed in meetings was essentially that the whole of government has broken down. Mm. Uh, departments are not working. They can't communicate inside the department. They can't communicate with other departments, they can't even uh, communicate with the Treasury. It goes on, let's have a look. 
uh, exiting lockdown this keeps coming back in now if you're sitting at home thinking well this is really good because they're working to get us out of lockdown you're going to be very disappointed so the agenda is to work out how to exit lockdown and repurpose government so the services services offered are fundamentally very different the needs are very different here we're getting a flavor that there is to be no release from lockdown until the opportunity and the and the parts are in place the government itself is going to be very different in how it works and how it responds to needs for example, joining care homes and the NHS, 160,000 businesses provide, sorry, there's duplicity there, providing tertiary care into the care home sector, operating as independent entities. The implication was that this was ridiculous. So working with local government and local enterprise partnerships is key. And the inference is here that all of these privately owned businesses are going to be scrapped and they're going to be hoovered up into the control of the NHS. Um, we should just mention, Brian, that uh, two or three months ago we were told from somebody inside the NHS that there was a programme uh, being worked on to effectively nationalise all the doctor's yep. surgeries. Uh, and this seems to fit absolutely with this plan. Uh, this, this is what made this information so interesting, Mike. There is so much that's being said here that interfaces with material we've already covered. You, of course, have focused in on the fusion doctrine. But yes, we did know about the plans to privatise doctor's, uh, nationalize. Uh, nationalize doctor's surgeries. So let's have the last one in here. Uh, this is a subject that came up repeatedly in the discussions that expanding AI is key and many public sector and civil service jobs are to go. So the government absolutely knows that by pushing its AI agenda, it's going to wipe uh, jobs off the slate. Uh, people are simply going to be unemployed. And now let's have a look at this. COVID-19 lockdown is an extraordinary opportunity not to reopen 50 or 60% of what each company does. When companies are operating, they get seduced into improving what they've already got rather than stopping, uh, rather than stopping and that's shocking to them. If it's already stopped, it's restarting that's shocking to them. So lockdown is an opportunity to fundamentally rethink what we should be doing. So why reopen schools, care homes, coal-fired power stations? Don't reopen any of them. They're garbage. They're yesterday's technology. They're polluting. They're toxic. They're badly organized. You just don't reopen them ever. Now, I've got a bit more to add, but uh, David, what's your reaction to that? Uh, my reaction is that we've not only heard this before, we've reported on this before. This is, this is a Scottish model of government, right? Um, I've got a quick quote for you here. Um, this is from uh, Northern Exposure, a document, believe it or not, called Northern Exposure. Lessons from the first 12 years of devolved government by Sir John Elvidge. Um, he writes, in, part, the, in partnership between the civil service and political leadership, point one, a radical Scottish model of government has been developed since 2007, building on the learning of an early period of devolution. It is based on the effort to have government function as a single organisation. They're rolling it out in Britain. Scotland's a testing ground. Now, Brian, everyone's going to share it. Everyone's going to share it. Well, let's add in the last piece of this uh, extraordinary saga. If the government is going to spend £240 billion and increase the debt by seven times, what is the point of reopening a technology that will be dead in 10 years' time? So take the £240 billion and reinvent society because we will, quote, never get this opportunity again in our lifetime. And if you've just joined... Uh, UK column. What, what we're reading out here is what a Westminster whistleblower said is being discussed at high-level meetings. So the government is not keen on releasing us from lockdown because while we are locked down, while industry and businesses are locked down, they can carry out with restructuring society. Mm. Mike, this is this is immensely dangerous stuff. And of course, 
there's no discussion of the Constitution. So we could we could uh, start to say, is this even lawful? Well, exactly. And, and David, uh, on uh, the Radio 4 Today program this morning, they were, there was a suggestion that the, the more... Uh, uh, the more adventurous uh, comment, commentators on this were arguing that perhaps government should be taking a stake in as many businesses as possible. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's really becoming quite clear, the direction of travel. Yes, the direction of travel is, is communism. communism. It's going to be uh, state ownership, a partial state ownership, state direction uh, of almost everything. Um, this is this is this is the end of uh, Britain as we know it, and happening in front of our very eyes. Now I've got to put some names up on screen. These are not, I say, they're not people that we can say have been involved in any of these meetings, um, but uh, doing a little bit of research ourselves, they seem some interesting individuals who appear likely um, to be included in the government's transformation game. So we've got people connected with the Treasury, we've got people connected with human resources in the civil service, we've got people connected with property, and uh, we've got others. So um, why should we show interest in these people? Well, this is Stephen Boyd, appointed to take over as head of the government property agency, 10th of June this year. And if you look at the government's own material here, it says the government's property agency's agenda is vital to delivering value for the taxpayer, providing great workplaces with which to deliver excellent public services. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen. Having been instrumental in delivering the first phase of the government hubs program for HMRC, Stephen is strongly placed to continue the, quote, transformation of the government estate. So this is the problem. The public simply does not know what's going on behind closed doors, but perhaps we've had a glimpse. Uh, I'll just say the register here reporting on uh, Robert Devereux, who's one of the uh, names we've had on screen. He was working at the Department for Work and Pensions, and I believe he was the individual that uh, uh, was there when pension age was raised. He's, he's now retired, and this article pointing out a very big pension pot we're not coming out of lockdown. The new normal is the key, Mike. I think that's right. Uh, but one of the uh, key areas that the government keeps pushing to try to ease, they say, ease some aspects of the lockdown is testing. Um, so uh, let's have a look at this document. Coronavirus COVID-19 scaling up our testing programs. Department of Health and Social Care published today. Um, and uh, well, the first thing that was, I thought was really interesting is they have a very similar style of uh, diagram as the uh, European Commission with respect to Defence Union, for example. They like this sort of pantheon, this pantheon symbology here with the pillars. Uh, and we want to look at uh, pillar four in particular here, Brian. And uh, well, this is what it says. Robust population surveillance programs are essential to understand the rate of infection and how the virus is spread across the country. They help us to assess the impact of measures taken so far to contain the virus, to inform current and future actions and to develop new tests and treatments. And one of the things that Michael Gove was, uh, was uh, announcing yesterday um, was a pilot program for the uh, public surveillance program, uh, population surveillance program, which is going to take place on the Isle of Wight. Uh, it's beginning there. They're hoping that 50 to 60 percent of the population of the Isle of Wight will download the NHS uh, app to allow for contact tracing and so on. Uh, but clearly, population surveillance is one of the outcomes of this. Well, this is a massive, and this, this we can see is fusion as well, isn't it? We've now got the British Army involved in spying on the general public. Yeah, well, uh, we can see this coming together. Absolutely. We'll be talking more about the Army's role in a second. OK, well, let's add to that. And thank you to one of our uh, viewers. They pointed out The Guardian back in, uh, when is this, 2006, August 2006, when Bill Gates met Tony Blair at Downing Street in 2001, the seeds were sown for the highly, hugely ambitious plan to transform the NHS with the power of computers. And um, what was this to do with? This was to do with a meeting with Bill Gates uh, where he was looking at the NHS's 12 billion IT programme. So this is, uh, this is where we're seeing the um, mixing of uh, Mr Gates's agenda and our own NHS. Uh, but also interested in digital health here, which is 
uh, printed an article about uh, Mr. Hancock's Health Tech Advisory Board uh, meeting. This is uh, uh, from uh, back in 2018. Um, if you don't know about this board, some details here, chaired by Dr. Ben Goldacre, a board focused to assist policy creation. Um, so we've got a group of people brought together to create an NHS uh, with cutting edge um, tech, technical vision, that's what it's talking about at the bottom. The use of data can revolutionize healthcare and have a look at the people involved. And I know one of these names has been quite interesting to a lot of people, a lady called Nicole Junkerman, because um, allegedly she's got links through to Israeli intelligence. And what people have been asking is, are we now giving our NHS data uh, to Israel? Mm. Which is an interesting question. Um, well, apparently we're going to meet again. Uh, the more we follow the rules, the sooner we'll be reunited. Uh, of course, this is all about lifting the lockdown and the government keeps pushing this narrative that uh, while we behave ourselves or if we continue to, dis uh, to, to behave badly, then we won't get the lockdown uh, lifted. But uh, the more we follow the rules, the sooner we'll be reunited. Uh, so we'll put a big question mark on that. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, the kind of uh, stuff that they're talking about with respect to the lifting, the gradual lifting of the lockdown. Now, uh, they're apparently looking at this on Thursday. There's a document be doing the rounds uh, internally, but they're looking at this on Thursday. Uh, Boris is probably not going to announce anything specific on Thursday. Uh, the, most of the mainstream media seem to think that that's going to be on Sunday, as Brian mentioned earlier. So they're talking about staff canteens staying closed even once people are allowed to go back to work. Uh, shifts are going to have to be staggered. Uh, homeworking is going to be something that they're really keen to push as a permanent situation. Lots of people don't enjoy working from home. And there are lots of tax implications, actually, if, if you are using space in your home and you're on PAYE. How is that going to be uh, handled? Uh, a lot of these questions haven't been answered. Uh, there is going to be continued social distancing uh, in the workplace, and uh, that may include the, uh, uh, the installation of protective screens, uh, just like we see in uh, the supermarkets at the moment, and also uh, placing uh, taped uh, areas on the on floor, the floor to make yeah. sure that uh, you're not getting too close. Um, so uh, so that's, that's about the height of it, uh, what we know so far. Uh, and uh, well, Brian was uh, discussing a few seconds ago how uh, the discussions from internally seem to imply getting rid of the silos, working horizontally rather than vertically. With masses of AI. Absolutely, masses yeah. of AI. This, this is uh, another aspect of the fusion doctrine. And uh, one of the other things that uh, Michael Gove was talking about yesterday during the live stream was the, the work of the, the military uh, to support the, uh, the government's COVID-19 uh, efforts. Uh, so let's just have a listen to what he had to say. We've also deployed military support to assist the public sector. The COVID support force, mobilised by the MOD, is now 20,000 strong. Today, over 3,600 personnel are deployed in support of 86 separate projects in which military aid is being given to civil authorities. Across the country, 156 military planners are embedded at grassroots level with our existing local resilience forums, partnerships of emergency services, local authorities, the NHS, the Environment Agency and others. So we've got partnerships coming right across the, the whole, every, every possible sector, interoperability, uh, the, 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 the conflation of, of military and civilian roles. And David, it's th that particular aspect of the fusion doctrine, this conflation of military and civilian, is something that we have uh, seen the European Union discuss for a number of years, and NATO, in fact, uh, as the European Defence Project has built. So this is another policy which they've been working on for many years, which is suddenly uh, actually being implemented under the uh, auspices of COVID-19 response. Yes, COVID-19 is uh, letting all the brakes off. Um, all of this uh, military plan of sitting in 156 forums around the country, organising all of our lives uh, in secret uh, without accountability. That'll make it much easier for martial law, I would guess. It just seems... Um, Actually, extremely un-British. Are we not meant to have a, a society that's based on freedom and not have the military running our lives and running our uh, civil society and running our institutions? Is that not what tin pot dictator countries have and continental countries have? It's not our way of doing things.
Well, tra traditionally it wasn't, David, but I, I have to say that I think this integration of Britain's military into a, what is uh, we can now see as a private uh, government system is, is just immensely dangerous. And 20,000 troops, we can't even put a, a full division on the battlefield for any sustained length of time. And yet suddenly we've hoovered up 20,000 people to be working, doing what? Spying on the British public. This should be across the whole of the mainstream media. Mm. But of course, we're seeing silence on this and we're seeing silence on the fact that the British government is happy that uh, business and the economy is being destroyed because it's going to allow uh, society to be rethought and repurposed. It's immensely dangerous. Absolutely. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column's doing and you would like to support us, your support would be much appreciated, uh, then uh, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Um, and uh, a reminder that uh, this weekend is AV11. Uh, it's a, a virtual uh, event only, so if you want to get tickets for the live stream, you can do that at the UK Column website. Uh, the URL is on screen at the moment. Um, uh, of course, you're giving a presentation, Brian, uh, Patrick Henningsen, David Ellis, but uh, a number of other hugely interesting speakers. Mr. Devine as well. We've got some, some really Gemero Doherty, so there's some really good speakers on a whole range of different topics, but we'll be interested to see how it all gels together with a picture of what's really happening. Uh, absolutely, and uh, we'll just mention that, of course, because that's taking place, there'll be no UK Column News on Friday, uh, but we will be back on Monday as usual. Um, so, uh, David, uh, let's talk uh, economy and finance again. And well, we've uh, had this graph up a few times, but uh, what's the latest situation? It looks like uh, they're starting to. Is it, are they are they flattening the curve there? They are for for now anyway. They're flattening the curve. So it's a, a mere eighty three billion of money printing and buying of everything on the shelf from the from the Fed uh, last week. Uh, so we're now at um, 6.655 trillion Fed balance sheet. So uh, either they're running out of things to buy, or they've decided that uh, they've, they've had the effect on the markets, on the financial markets they wanted to have. So uh, we're going to close things down for the moment. Uh, so around about 6.666 trillion would, would appear to be the place it would plateau at uh, the uh, current rate of progress. Um, well, let's just look and see uh, what the, whether they have succeeded in what they've attempted to achieve so far. This is uh, Wall Street on parade. Uh, they're talking about uh, uh, the banks having swollen in size from the uh, bailout operations from the Federal Reserve, that that could spell trouble for the future of the financial system. I think there's a, a phrase that goes along with that, but we won't say it just at the moment. Uh, they talk about the restoration of uh, Glass-Steagall, in other words, breaking the banks up. But this again is back on the agenda, despite the fact that it was on the agenda 20, in 2008, 2009, but didn't actually happen. Um, and uh, uh, they're saying that uh, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC are now also considering following uh, removal of these banks' reserve requirements. So they've already removed the, the banks' reserve requirements, as they've done in the UK, uh, but they're also suggesting uh, lowering the required capital ratios. Um, so uh, that even takes it a step further. Uh, here we have The Hill uh, saying big banks are growing due to coronavirus. That's an, enorm uh, an, sorry, ominous. That's an ominous sign. Um, so... Uh, so they're basically echoing the same type of sentiment. Uh, they're saying the, st the structure of Wall Street with trading casinos allowed to own our largest commercial banks is far more deadly to the future of America than COVID-19. This structure requires breakup by Glass-Steagall reenactment. Um, and uh, well, what has actually been going on? Well, Time magazine uh, has covered this a little bit. They're saying stocks are recovering while the economy collapses. That makes more sense than you'd think. Uh, well, okay. So, what are they? What are they basically saying? Well, they're making the point that the Fed is pumping money uh, into the financial system, and that's basically having this effect. Uh, so, now this graph was was from uh, Friday because we intended to cover this on Friday, but we ran out of time. Uh, but basically, as you can see, uh, stock prices already on the way down uh, as soon as the any notion of of COVID nineteen started to hit. But suddenly. Uh, just at the height of the pandemic, when really things should be getting particularly bad for uh, companies and stock prices should really be coming down as a result. Well, suddenly the stock market in the U.S. Uh, seemed to get some support. 
So where did that could, where could that possibly have come from? Uh, and in fact, we've seen exactly the same thing in the UK with the FTSE 100, uh, where uh, suddenly it got some support. Um, so David, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on there. It's pretty clear that that the money printing exercise has, to a certain degree, gone into supporting uh, the stock market, while the companies that are listed uh, are at increasing risk. Yes, exactly. So this is a plunge protection team. This is this is now what the banks are doing. The the Fed was meant to be about stable money and stable prices, and it's not about any of that now. It's about making sure the markets never go down. It's the ultimate put. So you know, people put their money into this, knowing that the government, however reckless the investment has been, the government, based on the work of the taxpayers and future taxpayers, will bail them out. This is the ultimate moral hazard. Well, absolutely. So what's going on in manufacturing? Well, the first figures we've got are from the uh, European uh, from the Eurozone. This is uh, uh, the uh, IHS market Eurozone manufacturing PMI. Now, of course, this is a survey, but that's uh, beside the point. It's, it's usually, usually reasonably accurate. Uh, and what they're saying here is that uh, manufacturing output in the Eurozone uh, fell at the largest pace on record. So it has never fallen so fast or so far. It is actually a little worse already than it was at the height of the crisis in 2008. Um, so uh, it fell to 33.4. Now, basically, the way that this index works is a score of 50 means that there's no change. So if you've got a score higher than 50, uh, then manufacturing is doing better. And if you've got a, sc a, a score lower than 50, then manufacturing is doing pretty badly. Um, so this is uh, it, just to give an idea. In March, uh, the score was 44.5. It's fallen to 33.4. Uh, and uh, it's being described as a drastic drop, uh, a combination of factors including widespread factory closures, slumping demand, supply shortages, all linked to the COVID-19 outbreak. And one of the points they make, David, uh, is that, of course, supply chains basically could be completely broken at this point, um, and uh, those are going to be extremely difficult to recreate. And this, I think, is a point you've been trying to make over the last couple of weeks. Exactly. So the, the economy is is extremely complex. The 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 crude um, bailout by by money printing that has been attempted here does not save crucial parts of the of the supply chain. If they break, they'll take a long time to reassemble because we're talking about about uh, capital investment. We're talking about a, a great deal of expertise being assembled, and once it's destroyed. Well, it's 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 gone. It 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 takes a it takes a lot to uh, it, to to bring it back from scratch, and um, we're seeing here the the real economy plummet, the real economy die, uh, and and yet government and the financial markets sail happily on as though nothing has happened. It's a very unreal situation. Um, well, let's uh, let's move on to, to another aspect of this, which of course is energy demand. Because if if you have no manufacturing, then you've got no, got no real demand for energy going on. This the International Energy Agency uh, basically talking about uh, the collapse in demand for energy in various sectors, uh, and uh, well, largest decline uh, since the Second World War. Let's just uh, let's just look at a little bit of this. Uh, lockdowns are sharply reducing electricity demand, and they're showing the collapse in electricity demand across all the major economies, including the UK, France, Germany, uh, Spain, Italy, uh, and India. Uh, China seems to have recovered to a certain degree, uh, but uh, actually, where's China going to be selling any of the products that they're manufacturing in the minute? That's another question. Um, and then they go on to look at uh, the percentage changes in electricity demand. So there's the United States, the European Union, and we're seeing that already significantly lower than uh, what was going on in 2008, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's the situation with that. And then we've got uh, the change of global energy demand from 1971 until now, uh, and right across the various energy sectors. And uh, you can see that oil is in the worst position of the lot. Interestingly enough, David, uh, uh, it looks like the Fed has taken some direct action in the last couple of days to uh, to deal with the situation with oil. So. So the crude price has gone up for, for West Texas from, I think, $11 up to $17. Uh, we should be really impressed with that, no? Well, I just wonder where the Fed are going, are going to put the oil, because you have to buy oil to, to do that. 
and it's got to actually go somewhere. You have to, someone somewhere has to store it. And um, I'm not sure where that's going to happen. I mean, they, they, they can buy oil for the strategic U.S. reserve, and they are doing that. But uh, even that must have its limits in, as to capacity. Uh, absolutely. Um, so what's going on with house prices? Because, of course, the, the, the market, uh, well, we don't really know where the market's going to sit if there is ever a relaxation of lockdown. No, nobody knows. Um, but there's a, a warning here from the Times. Uh, losers and a few winners from the crash in house prices. So they're predicting a crash. Um, I, I would point out that the changes in lending policy by people like Nationwide uh, and, and, and the big banks would suggest that they are trying to insulate themselves in uh, from something like a 25 to 40 percent house price reduction. The Times article comes up with a similar number. Uh, they write, tucked away at the back of Lloyd's Banking Group's first quarter results, there were some startling figures. If the economic crisis were to seriously worsen, it said house prices could, could fall 10 percent this year, another 10.9 percent in 2021, and a further 12.9 percent in 2022 overall 30% and over three years. So we're talking about um, uh, house prices, which, as you know, are a major and an unbalanced element of the UK economy, uh, being in um, recession uh, and slump for three years. Um, this will make house prices at the end much more affordable, but it will trap a great many people in some very awkward financial situations with mortgages that exceed the value of their homes and all of the um, pain and, and limitation as to, as to the freedom that comes from that. Uh, I mean, the only uh, sort of ray of hope for people in this situation is that, that there's no prospect of interest rates going up in the, in the near term. Or indeed ever. At what point, at what point did the Bank of England in this environment where everything is, everything is based on printing funny money, are they ever going to put up interest rates? I think not. Uh, no. Uh, well, look, uh, let's let's just move on to this. Um, the government is pushing this out at the moment as hard as they can. Ask your question. You could have it answered at the next coronavirus press conference. And uh, Brian, I thought this was a perfect uh, opportunity for people to, to let the government know what they think, because people must have lots and lots of questions. I mean, there must be lots of questions that have uh, that could be raised just on the basis of this uh, this news program alone. Uh, this must be a perfect opportunity for people to uh, to get their views in. And, and we say to do it properly, which is to put your views in with evidence to back up your views. So where other scientists or doctors or um, virus trained people are questioning what's going on, put the evidence in your letter. Don't just make it a sort of barrage of a of abuse because that doesn't achieve anything. Get the evidence in front of these people because that embarrasses them. Uh, absolutely. So if you want to ask a question, uh, which will probably never be heard on the next live stream, but it's still worth the, the effort putting it in because it's the only way to communicate with these people. Uh, it's uh, gov.uk slash ask. Uh, and there's a little form there for you to fill in. Uh, I suggest you do it. Now, David, uh, what's going on in the world of hate? Well, we are, we are doubling down on hate. So we covered this last week. There's a new hate crime bill coming up in Scotland. A new, uh, it's going to be a crime. You've got seven, up to seven years imprisonment for stirring up a hate crime, um, even though stirring up and hatred are not defined in, in the bill. So uh, this, is, this is where England's going to go, because we're all now following the Scottish model of government. This is the sort of places that joined-up approach leads. Um, it has not, however, been uh, receiving universal acclaim, quite the reverse. Uh, here we've got Spiked. Um, they've done an article, very good article on it. The SNP's War on Free Speech. This is what it is. A nice, nice photograph here from, from uh, my nearby um, major town of Perth, and all of the police gathered there in the centre of town. Make sure no one, no one has any uh, heretical ideas. Um, so Spiked go on. And they got, the SNP had decided uh, to change the hate crime legislation. Uh, the appointed Lord uh, 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 Brackadale, uh, far from far from libertarian Scottish appeal judge, to review the matter, and he came up with a very hardline report. Um, and in this, they make three new offences: first, a general crime of doing anything or communicating any material which is threatening or abusive 
or, uh, and is intended or likely to engender hatred based on age, disability, religion, sexual orientation, transgender, intersexuality, intersex identity, etc. Second, a crime of merely possessing any such material. So if you hold it with a view to communicating it, so you might hold it to pass it to a friend, um, that is also criminal under this Act. And third, it's going to be, there's going to be criminal sanctions for anyone involved in the management of any organisation which fails to take steps to prevent any of the above. So companies are going to have to police their own workforce to make sure they don't provide any heretical thought crime information. Otherwise, the management of the companies will be in the dock. Um, and Spike concludes, to put it bluntly, these are terrible proposals. The Scottish government has no interest whatsoever in freedom of speech. Instead, it wants to project a comforting woke image to professionals and other supporters in Pollock Shields and Brunsfield. Uh, the laws must be opposed. Not, not only are they appallingly illiberal in themselves, but if passed, they will not be the last word. Uh, this is very true and excellent from spite. And uh, also, it's uh, this, this has been going international. Here we've got the National Review, um, and they are reporting that Scotland swaps one blasphemy law for another. Uh, the one of the sort of minor parts of this law is that the, the blasphemy is still on the statute books in Scotland, and it's been removed as part of this. But obviously, a sort of new version of, of, of blasphemy laws is coming in. So uh, the National Review says uh, this is uh, precisely the kind of moral orthodoxy that John Stuart Mill warned against in 1859. Minority views will always be threatened by some prevailing tyranny. Mill wrote on liberty at a time in which moral dogmas of the Church of Scotland were legally enforced. Today, Scotland is in thrall of a new religion, uh, the Church of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion which is just as menacing and humorless, and uh, to which the Scottish Government kowtows just as readily. Um, that was written by a Scottish journalist working for the National Review and is spot on. However, uh, the, the legislation has received some support. Um, the uh, YouTube account, uh, Tatiana McGrath, um, she loves it. She says, the new hate crimes bill in Scotland means that anyone who stills up hatred can be jailed for seven years. And the great thing is, we don't even have to prove there was any hateful intent. If we just feel insulted, that's sufficient. I'm moving to Scotland. So here we go. So Tatiana McGrath gets it. Uh, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to change people and make sure that they are suitably cowed and will not speak their minds ever again. David, can I just interject briefly with an eye on the clock and... Uh... Uh, on that document, it said stiffer penalties for hate crimes based on age. And I thought to myself, how interesting, because it was recently revealed that over 500 children of the ages of five or six had been reported through to central databases um, as part of the prevent strategy. So um, are they going to give stiffer, stiffer sentences to five year old children who are now on police databases for hate crimes? There is actually no limit to this because everything's undefined. They don't define hatred. They don't define stirring up. Everything's undefined. So there is actually no limit on what they will do. They will do exactly what they want. And as the politically correct control grid moves, then everyone's um, behaviour will have to move with it or will be tied you. Yes. Uh, now, of course, we live in the age of the Ministry of Truth, where and we've highlighted this a number of times over the last couple of weeks, where information can change retrospectively, uh, even on BBC articles, uh, which apparently uh, that's OK for them. Um, well, of course, uh, one way to, uh, to deal with that problem uh, is to, to look at the Wayback Machine. But apparently uh, that is not going to be an option for very much longer because the attack has become has begun on the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine. COVID hoaxes are using a loophole to stay alive, even after content is deleted. And what they're saying is that basically uh, content is taken down from the Internet uh, through censorship because you're not uh, allowed to, to ask questions about the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that that information is still available on the, uh, on the Wayback Machine, on the Internet Archive, uh, and that, uh, that can't be allowed to stay. Uh, and David, you know, the Internet Archive has been around for for a very long time, it has done a very good job, largely. Sometimes it is, has not done such a good job, but, but largely it's done a very good job in making sure that there's some kind of uh, historical perspective possible on what's been published on the Internet. Uh, and I think it is a very valuable resource and one that we can't really uh, see attacked in this way. In this case, it's by the uh, MIT, uh, but, but this has got a, become a broader attack, I'm quite sure. 
Yes, and it is essential. Uh, there needs to be some accountability where people use the memory hole and change the truth and airbrush people out of uh, history. Uh, they need to be held account uh, to account for that, and we need to have the data to do so. Yes. Now, uh, we're, we're out of time, but let's just uh, run through a couple more of these. Uh, last week, David, we were talking about the health, health protection coronavirus restrictions and, and particularly the, uh, the, the public health legislation that's uh, at the back of that. Uh, just bring us up to date with, with your thoughts on this. I just want to highlight that the, the coronavirus regulations, they are based and, and, and created via the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. It's a very well-timed act. Um, and if you go to that, and I, and I recommend that everyone should go and read that act, it's been quite heavily amended um, by another act uh, in 2008. But you, you've, you can find it on, on the, the government legislation website. And you'll find that there are many things and many powers uh, that it creates that are uh, they are absolutely terrifying when you can see when you see the way the government is going and using the COVID nineteen crisis for other um, political uh, outcomes. So one of the clauses here is uh, the power to order health measures in relation to persons. So this is orders that may made, be made by a justice of the peace. So he has the power to order a person to submit to medical examination, to order that person to be removed to a hospital or other suitable establishment. Could that be one of our empty jails, maybe? Um, he can order that the person be detained in hospital or other suitable, suitable establishment. He can order that they be kept in isolation or quarantine. And, and on it goes, uh, including they, must, they can order someone to abstain from working or trading. Now, how is the um, justice of the peace, which is pretty low grade in terms of someone having the power to essentially detain you without limit of time, how is he to make these decisions? Well, he's to make these decisions based on uh, evidential requirements laid down by the Secretary of State for Health or other suitable government minister. So it's a direct means by which the government can control us and completely quash all of our rights if they can simply cite um, something like COVID-19 as as excuse. I mean, this is this is the uh, the stuff that Ben uh, Ben Fellows was trying to uh, to highlight people to last week. His his uh, uh, video did go viral, uh, you know, with one slight caveat that it, that that the the, the the 1984 Act isn't new. It's been around since 19, 1984. But but as you say, there were amendments made in 2008. Uh, it is it is a piece of legislation that people. Haven't really had any sight of before until until Ben raised it. So it is something we need to do much more uh, work on. But as you say, it, it's pretty draconian in its uh, scope. Yes, there's no test for reasonableness. There's 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 no there's no checks and balances. And before the justice of the peace, really, yeah, perpetual. I mean, th th there is almost no limit to what what they can do to you under this this act. Yeah, yeah, and as we mentioned last week, Brian, of course, uh, actions which are taking place in magistrates' courts, uh, as as is happening with uh, local councils and council tax, they just hand a spreadsheet over and say, uh, you know, no, uh, approve that. Yes, yeah, so they'll be doing batches of people for so-called hate crime in the way that they're doing batches of people for not paying council tax. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Sarah Vine, the uh, wife of Michael Gove, created quite a stir on Twitter uh, this morning, uh, I noticed that uh, uh, David Irvin's name was was uh, was uh, trending on Twitter, and I was wondering why. Uh, and it turns out this is why she uh, tweeted this out as a very special treat for my trolls. Uh, here's another bookshelf. There are about twenty more uh, bookshelves, I presume she means. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, she took a photograph of a bookshelf uh, which, in fact, uh, contained. Oops, sorry, I do apologise. Uh, contained. Uh, one of David Irving's books. Um, so apparently the Gove household uh, has been reading The Warpath by David Irving. Uh, David, and uh, well, lots and lots of people on Twitter. It has sent Twitter into a bit of a spin this morning. Yes, and those people who are spinning on Twitter, I wonder how many of them have ever read anything by David Irving, because it's, it's maybe much more easy to uh, condemn people if you never read any of their words or work or thoughts. Um, it uh, doesn't allow, you know, awkward facts to uh, muddy the waters. David, an interesting conundrum because what you've said is perfectly correct. However, in the government's 
um, I governments in this country, government in, in Europe, um, he's producing hate material and under the new law, if you hold that hate material, you're guilty of a crime, aren't you? Well, yes, Brian, but uh, the laws don't apply equally. Uh, those are laws for you and me and the other common men. They don't apply to the politically correct, uh, the politically connected. But if the politically connected become unconnected, uh, then they better watch out. Yes, and we'll just end with this one, David. Yes, I, I love this. Uh, little girl says, I think, from a, a, a World War One era bit of propaganda, it's been uh, slightly adjusted. A little girl sitting on daddy's lap says, Daddy, what did you do when the state took all of our freedoms and rights away? And the father uh, looks wistfully into the distance and replies, I called anyone who questioned it a conspiracy theorist and clapped like a monkey. <laughs> Which is pretty spot on, I think we would say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, David, we're out of time. We'll end there. We're going to th say thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners and subscribers and all of you who've donated. We've had some more donations in this morning. Thank you very much to that. How long is UK Column going to be able to produce factually correct and accurate news under the present circumstances? We don't know, but we're going to continue to keep going and keep smiling. If you're a member of the public now starting to get deeply concerned at watching the United Kingdom turn into a communist or a communitarian fascist even state, and that's what we've been describing today, uh, then unlike the gentleman in the cartoon, you need to do something. And of course, what better time than to use social media, emails, the telephone, letters, in order to hold your MPs to account because it's uh, very obvious from letters that we're seeing that the average MP simply has no idea what is actually being brought together around them. So get those MPs informed, put them under pressure, start to ask the questions. We'll leave it there. Mm. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.